0: Dairy farmer, milking cows and making cheese on my small farm in Wisconsin.
1: And I'm Matt Kinzera, and I know next to nothing about farming, but I'm on this food and farming adventure.
0: Gather with us around the farm table. There's a rhythm and a routine in dairy farming and cheesemaking that I find comforting. 5 a.m., I'm out of bed, pour a cup of coffee, and write my to-do list for the day. 5.30, I'm in my boots and heading out to round up the cows. 6 a.m., the first milkers go on. The sound of the vacuum pump hums in the barn and the cadence of the pulsation continues. Half past six, my dad arrives and begins to ready the creamery for a day of cheesemaking. He flips on the radio and NPR joins the sounds from the barn. 7 a.m. the cows are back out grazing and by 8 I'm showered and ready to add the culture to the cheese. The rest of the day is measured in pH readings and temperatures until the curds made from the morning's milk are packed with care into the cheese forms and set to press overnight. And tomorrow I'll gladly do it all again. Matt, welcome to the farm.
1: Well, thanks, Inga. It's great to be here again. This is a spectacular farm day. You can just smell the cows and the cheese in the air, and your dad's in front of us on his iPad. That's exactly (laughs) what I expect when I come to the farm. People don't
0: know how often farmers are actually on their iPads. (laughs) Yeah,
1: Yeah, I I actually found that out once when I got lost on a river, and I had to get out of the river to figure out where I was, and the farmer answered the door with an iPad and just messed with my head. I didn't know what was happening
0: (laughs) well I wanted to kind of talk with you about some folks that we both know and they're a lovely husband and wife couple one of my favorite things about living here and meeting the people is to find out what they're passionate about and to find out how they stumbled into farming
1: farming is such an interesting thing to stumble into because it takes so much intentionality that I'm surprised at how many people do become passionate about it. And I met Vince and Julie Morrow when they were helping me create a community garden for a nonprofit I was working for. And just some of the most spectacular people you'll ever meet.
0: And they're always in a good
1: mood. They are. They always are laughing and giggling. And you can even hear their smiles through the audio.
0: Well, I'm going to let Julie tell you about how she found her journey into farming. So exciting. Let's hear it.
2: My great grandma Lucy had our family farm and it was my very favorite place in the whole world. She had chickens and cows and cats and dogs and I just have my fondest memories of being on her farm. I grew up in Appleton so being on grandma's farm was real different than being in the city. And I just knew that at some point when I grew up that's what I wanted to be and that's where I wanted to live was on a farm like grandma Lucy's.
3: I also grew up in a city I grew up in Milwaukee and my all of my grandparents were immigrants from Sicily so they would find any location they could to grow uh, pepper or a, um, a tomato and I guess I inherited all of that from them which is what I did started doing early on in life in the 20s in my 20s when we moved out here we, we purchased this property in 1995 after we were married Yeah. and when we moved out here in 99 immediately i was in my glory of being able to grow vegetables and do the farm life in a way that i'd always imagined to do so it matched a lot of what julie had already experienced so we just started from there and it just grew the vegetables and the chickens of course julie contributed a little bit with the chickens (laughs) i came home one day to plans for a chicken coop that turned into a chicken coop and a goat barn. <laughs> and you know, the rest is history, you know. And I, and I just, I can get out on the field and I can get lost.
1: You know, Inga, I didn't grow up on a farm, but I did grow up in the middle of nowhere in the country. And I do remember how great it is just to be surrounded by nature. And specifically I remember there was some, well probably plenty of times when my parents would get upset with me or I'd get upset with them. And we lived on this bluff kind of overlooking the Wisconsin River and I had this rock that I knew where it was and I was one of the only people who knew how to get there and when I would get upset for any reason I would go up to my rock, overlook the river valley and it just felt like everything went away like everything was fine suddenly
0: that's the thing about nature is when you kind of let it take you over, take over your senses, it really calms you, right?
1: So true. Have
0: yes. you heard, Have you heard of forest bathing at all?
1: For, forest bathing? No, no, I've never heard of forest bathing. I think I'm going to though, aren't I?
0: Yeah, so, yeah. So forest bathing is just sort of being out in nature and being out in, I don't know the technical definition for it, but this is my definition is just spending that time with intention and being out in nature and having all of your senses aware. So paying attention to what you're hearing, paying attention to what you're smelling, what you're feeling. Are you feeling that shade of the trees on your skin or the air moving? You know, What are you listening to? What are you tasting? It kind of helps you just stop. And go into like a sort of a walking meditation.
1: Ooh, that sounds that sounds good. I also like forest bathing because you know I work from home, so I don't always do normal bathing. But then <laughs> when my wife sometimes says, "Hey, spend a few days," I can say, "Actually, the last couple days I've been forest
0: bathing, <laughs> so it's
1: totally fine."
0: I think I think you can use that. Sure. Going, oh, going,
1: whether I can or not, I'm going to. As
0: long as you come back smelling like you know rich pine, I think you'll <laughs> I be fine.
1: All right, let's hear from Vince and. In- Julie, about their forest bathing experiences in their own garden?
2: I think on good days, it's almost like a meditation because when you're milking, it's just, you know, back and forth and back and forth and we could pray and just kind of think about life. And then on other days when life is hectic, I'm thinking, what's the next thing on my to-do list and where do I have to go next? And But it. it I think often forces us to just slow down and be more cognizant and more grateful for everything that's around us and the ability to live like this.
3: I would agree. I I do think that, you know, certainly on days that it's busy, it's not a meditation necessarily to get the job done. But yes, it is a time for meditation, a time for prayer, a time to even think about where your life is going and where you want it to go. There's oftentimes I've said this to some people, and I can't can't do it, of course, you know, sometimes I get some of my best ideas and I wish I had a piece of paper there or something to write it all down. I don't want to take my phone out there as I'm weeding, but there's just nothing like being able to be in the midst of it and to be listening to things like we're listening to even at this point. The birds are singing, the fog is raising, maybe if you're early in the morning. I mean it's it's indescribable.
2: You farm with all of your senses. You know, you could walk into the barn and know something's wrong because you have smelled something or heard something or just sensed that something's off. Or that everything's okay because you know, you hear the just the quiet, peaceful sounds of walking into the barn so i really think it makes us more aware of everything around us and therefore more grateful for everything that's here
1: it's so fun to hear people talk about what they're experiencing when they're gardening or farming and it almost gives you goosebumps when you hear people like yourself or anybody else just talk about the experience because we often don't think about that i that's it's my perspective anyway
0: right well it's really it's such a treat to be able to do what we do and to really tune into what's happening around us and I think the older I get, and the more I learn about farm, you know, what I'm doing here on my farm, what other people are doing, it is so nice to be able to to share that with other people.
1: Yes. Yeah, speaking of sharing, we have to acknowledge that there's a large group of people in our world, in our culture, that they're not going to farm. They might not even garden. Maybe it's because they don't have the space, because they live in town. Maybe it's because they don't have the time, or maybe it's just because they don't want to do it. But that is where farmers markets come into play which is such a great resource in so many communities now and i know for my family we are known to fail at gardening we're just really good garden <laughs> failures. so we try and we fail which is why we always rely on our farmers market to get the really great food that we put on our table, because honestly, will they call it a green thumb? I don't have one of those.
0: (laughs) Well, isn't it fun too, just to be at the market and just be there with the rest of your community and sort of share that Saturday morning together as you're walking through with your cup of coffee and seeing what is new that week.
1: Right. Yeah, because it is a process. If you go early in the year, there's just a handful of things. And then as the year progresses, it's the next thing comes out. And then we're all waiting for when the tomatoes come in right. August or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And when they start coming, it's this almost this celebration. Everybody's talking about it, which is so yeah. fun. Yeah,
0: and then you can kind of have that conversation with the farmer. You know, I'm all about having those conversations and learning because I just think it's so important for us, especially if we have young children with us or even older children with to To have those conversations around food, healthy food, what it's doing for us, because it's something that's so important in our everyday lives. One of my favorite things when I was doing a farmer's market back, oh gosh, I can't believe, this is like 20 years ago, in Washington, D.C., we would drive, I lived just outside in Virginia, my mom and I would drive through the Capitol, past the White House, and we'd set up our booth in DuPont Circle with a ton of other farmers and to see these folks who were politicians, who were university professors, who had no connection to a farm, but were so eager to come and learn how we made cheese, you know, what the ricotta was like that we were making. And we would have over time, regulars and that was like the really fun thing because like we had this one guy that would bring my mom and I a coffee every morning and just we would check in on each other's lives what's going on oh how's your daughter at college all these different things food does so much for us as a community anyway but having these markets that's another way to explore each other and food
1: yeah we always talk about how food brings people together and I think we often think about that surrounding our dinner table because it brings families together but if you look at a farmer's market, is truly centered on food and it's bringing the entire community together. And you'll hear Vince and Julie talk about how it became this educational experience for them as well. And if you ever get a chance to spend any time with these two, you will learn a lot because they have just so much knowledge in their heads and they love to share it with people. And so here's Vince and Julie just talking about their experience at the local farmers market.
3: One of the things that was amazing to me was that people did not know how to roast a chicken or they had never really tasted a chicken like you would grow on the farm. We ended up having, I remember doing lots of instruction on how to roast a chicken and then afterwards how do you make broth so we started doing recipes and then we would also educate people on how the chicken was raised or how the, the vegetables were grown and, and developed and how Julie would do lots of instruction about what was different about her soap. And to, to be able to do that and pass that on to people, hopefully even at this point with recipes, that people are using the whole chicken and as we speak, I've got broth sitting in my refrigerator. And that was really enjoyable, I think.
2: Yes, and I think another part of that was when we sold chicken at market, because we were certified organic, of course our costs were much much higher than conventional. So it wasn't uncommon for a chicken to cost our customer 20, $25, which is a lot of money for a chicken. but. As you break it down, and Vince teaches you how to roast the chicken and make soup, now you've got two, three meals out of that one bird. And so it's much more economical and I think made people steward their purchase better also and know that they wanted to get as much value out of it as they could. You know, and same for yourself, though. Yes, you know? yes, yes think people were really shocked that it took me six weeks to make a bar of soap from start to finish. And just the look on their face like, what? You know, it was like they expected I was in the kitchen the night before, you know, pulling out bars of soap that I had just started that afternoon. And I think that was a big part of what we enjoyed was the teaching part, but also the relationships of the people that we met at Farmer's Market and that we still keep in contact with.
0: One of the things that really drew me to Julie is that she's doing a value-added product, which is goat smoke soap. And the goat smoke soap, you know, you see these at farmer's markets sometimes or like your Whole food store or at craft fairs. I've seen people selling soap for years and years, and it wasn't until I met Julie that I tried it, and it was like literally life-changing. I'm, my skin was just so excited about the soap because it's just, it is full of moisture. And it is just a different experience. Is that weird to say that the soap is a different experience?
1: It is for a guy. <laughs> yeah, I feel like my soap experience is always pretty neutral. You never think about it that much? <laughs> But I, I have had Julie's soap, which I think she calls Lucy's soap. Is yeah, that right? Is that her sound right? Yeah. Yes. Who she already mentioned. Now, I will say this: it is the greatest smelling thing on the planet. It just smells so good. So I don't know that I can tell how it feels, but it smells great, and it makes Susie happy whenever I bring it home. Well, instead
0: of forest bathing tonight, you have to do a real bath with some of that soap. This
1: is basically, this is a whole episode about bathing, right? (laughs) So we're taking forest baths. We're using Lucy's soap. So here is a little bit about how Julie got started making Lucy's soaps.
2: The goats came first. We have a neighbor who at the time was raising a pretty good-sized herd of alpine dairy yes, goats was, yeah. and we went over to see her baby goats and of course I fell in love with the baby goats because there's nothing cuter than a baby goat and
3: and you told me you're gonna get goats in two three years and they showed up the next week <laughs>
2: Well, sometimes my timing's a little off. Next thing we knew, her husband was over helping Vince put up a stall in the barn so we could have goats, and they did a lot of nice work that the goats later ate, (laughs) like the doors and the feeder.
3: Right, I've replaced that feeder now twice. Yes
2: we met Tony and Della at the value added farming conference and they had gotten a grant to teach several other farm families how to make goat milk soap. So as part of that grant, I went down to their farm and learned the process and got their recipes and then sent information back to them about you know how much soap I was producing and what the costs were. and. I just became hooked at that point. It was just really fun and really satisfying. I started out in our home kitchen and I was always really leery about doing it when the boys were little and were home. I'd wait till they went to school because you use lye, of course, to make soap. And I never felt comfortable about using that when the kids were around. So after they would go to school, I would use our home kitchen to make soap. And then after a few years went by, we built the addition onto the back of our garage that's now our soap kitchen, which was nice because then everything was in one area and I could close the door and use that
0: as my workspace. Just like a lot of these artisan products that we talk about, whether it's cheese or oils or anything, soap is another product that it takes a lot. There's a lot going into it and it takes time. And that's what makes it so special too is the time that it takes, but also that it's a real product. And it's, you know, part of her soul is going to these soaps and I just love that. But I'm going to let her tell you all the steps that it takes. And I think it's going to be mind opening just to see all these different things that goes into this bar of soap.
2: Well, sometimes when you go to the grocery store and you walk down the soap aisle and you look at what you think is a bar of soap, it says it's like a beauty bar or a moisturizing bar, and it doesn't see even soap on it because of the ingredients they use. So when you do make actual soap, you have to use a lye and an ass, you know, an acid and a base, and so oils and the goat milk together. And the way I was taught to make soap is that you would mix it or melt it at least twice so I start by using frozen goat milk to mix with the lye and the goat milk has to be frozen otherwise the chemical reaction is so hot that it would burn at that point and turn a really ugly orange color so in one sink I have the goat milk and the lye slowly mixing together while on the stove I melt all my oils like olive oil and then I take a stick blender that's on a power drill, and I mix that together for about 10 minutes. Once that has created a, a, a nice mixture, then I pour it into two kind of large Tupperware-like containers, and from there that cures for about 24 hours. And then I can pop it out of the containers, and I put it on the shelves to dry downstairs. And then after four to six weeks, when those initial bars are cured, I bring them back up to the silk kitchen, and I take oh, like a big cheese knife, and I cut them into strips. I I take them out
0: and put them on the drying rack for another healthy days or
2: weeks to cure again, so... It does end up being a very long process from start to finish.
0: So what do you think about that whole process of making
2: soap?
1: I am... I'm worn out. I'm (laughs) worn out. I'm going to try to conserve my Lucy's soap, is what I know, because she gifted us a little bar of Lucy's soap. I'm going to be so careful to make that last because it took her so long to make it. It's like a whole commitment. I know. I'm going to feel guilty washing my face with her soap. Uh, Don't, don't, don't. But I also don't like doing it because it's got those little animals engraved in the soap or molded into the soap, and so I always want to use the backside of Lucy's soap. Soap so the animal stays looking
0: right she has these like little molds that she'll put her soap in and she gifted me one years and years ago when i first met her and i had it sitting in a box waiting for the right occasion to set it out for guests you know for years <laughs> i finally just said i love the soap so much I, I don't care how cute it is i'm using it and now i see she's whenever i see her she gifts me a plain bar and oh, so brilliant. i feel like less guilty about using it because yeah. it's just like okay it's it's not a little showcase it's you know
1: yeah, she should maybe market that two different ways. Like The ones with the little animals on it are for gifts and things like and that. And guests.
0: You, you put this yeah, out when your and guests, guests are there. <laughs> but
1: for your everyday use, here's one where you don't feel guilty about using because there's no goat or sheep, whatever's on the front of it. It's not there, so just wash away with that bar of So One of the things Vince and Julie are very passionate about is farming growing organically and I know that's something that you're passionate about as well but I've heard that this term organic is getting a little bit diluted in our culture.
0: It's a little bit muddy. What do you think about when you think of an organic family farm just like off the top of your head?
1: The biggest thing I think about is no pesticides. I guess that's the first thing that comes to my mind. I think about grass-fed beef. That's another I think term that I think of. Free-range chickens. Right. Those are probably the top three things that would come to my mind mind and those are things that would be important to me
0: so now that there's more money involved in organic it's gotten a lot bigger so i think that one thing that i go back to is like vince and julie i'm no longer a certified organic farm i still like vince and julie do everything the same still feed my cows organic i graze my cows as many days of the year i can And I think about the environment. I I don't use any pesticides here. I think about how we're building habitat around us for our birds, our other species. And it seems like now organic, when you buy an organic chicken in the grocery store from a larger company, maybe it's not what you're thinking of. I don't I don't think mm-hmm. that a lot of these chickens have been out free ranging or grazing on grass on a beautiful sunny day like this. A lot of them are just in it's still kind of industrial agriculture.
1: Yeah, because bigger isn't always better mm-hmm. and the reality is There's people that understand when you put the term organic on something, there's a whole new group of people that are going to buy your product. So there's one reason to go organic, which is to make money being organic, and then there's another way to go organic, which is how you do it, how Vince and Julie do it, which is just because it's the right way to farm, it's the right way to grow, it's the right way to do things, and like so many things on a smaller level, it makes more sense.
2: I think we both just felt that it was the right way to go about doing things because our kids were young and we were really concerned about what we were eating and what they were eating. and it just seemed like a logical extension to become organic. And as we were selling at farmer's market, it made sense to be certified at that point because of the Mm -hmm. number of chickens we were raising and eggs we were selling and vegetables. So when we were doing greater production and having, you know, larger sales like that at farmers market, it made a lot of sense for us to be certified organic. We are no longer certified, although we continue to use the same practices, but because we're not doing it on the scale we once did to pay the fees for organic certification, just we just can't justify that. conscious
3: belief in that system of farming and of growing things, not only vegetables, but also animals. I just, mm-hmm. you know. And we we still believe in it completely. I haven't changed any of my practices.
0: always curious to kind of check in with you after we learn so much from these folks and see how it kind of changes your perspective.
1: Well, I think with Vince and Julie, the perspective that they bring is a perspective I think we need to learn in our world as a whole, that there's just some right ways to do things in this world. But... That we don't get so bent out of shape that we don't have fun doing things the right Right. way. Because some people get so serious about things. And the thing I loved about sitting down with Vince and Julie is that they laughed, but then they were also very serious. And you could just tell that they genuinely love their life together. And it's amazing to talk to them because this wasn't their first career, even. So yeah. So there's still time. Spectacular couple.
0: There's still time for you to become a farmer.
1: Oh, good, good. I'll go buy my (laughs) straw hat. You can start
0: by cleaning out my pen.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's perfect. That's perfect. Well, one thing that I know about Vince and Julie is they love food. They love to cook. I've heard that pesto is kind of a big deal to them as well as you.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, summertime is the perfect time to be making pesto and thinking about what you're going to be eating in the wintertime and how you're going to preserve all the things from the garden. This morning, I went out to the garden and I just clipped down as much basil as I could. I probably filled like two grocery bags full of basil. And the thing, Matt, when you're, you have herbs in your garden or on your patio or whatever, the more you cut them, the more they're going to grow back. So something like a basil, if you're using it a lot, if you're cutting off the stems, you're cutting it so it doesn't flower. Because as soon as it flowers, it's going to get really hard and a little bit bitter and not great tasting. As a farmer, I'm always thinking about winter is approaching and we have a little bit of time during the growing season to kind of grow everything that we need for the winter time. So it's for me, it's important for my taste buds to have a little bit of that reminder of summertime. So this is what you want to do. This is how I do my quote-unquote pesto for freezing. And this is not a traditional pesto, but this is something that Julie and I both agree on, is we wait to add our cheese until just before serving. So harvest as much basil as you can I like to do it before the sun kind of really starts getting hot on the basil. I think it's fresher in the morning, so I gather as much basil as I can, take off all the leaves from the stem, and set them aside. After they've been washed and dried, I get my Cuisinart together. I put a ton of garlic, I'm talking like three or four cloves, in the Cuisinart, and then I process that through. And then I open my Cuisinart back up, and I put in three or four good heaping handfuls of that basil leaves. Now I process that again, and then I start dumping in some olive oil. When you're making your pesto, you don't make it from a recipe. You make it from how it feels, how the kitchen smells, how it tastes, what color it looks like. That's how you're gonna make your pesto. Now you're probably thinking, well, wait a minute. She didn't even add some of the key ingredients, which is pine nuts and lemon juice. Pine nuts are a little bit pricey, so I really don't add those. Sometimes I'll do uh, cashew or something else if I have it on hand. Julie was saying that she does walnuts, which I love that idea. And then I add my Parmesan cheese before I start serving it during the winter time. So after my basil, my olive oil, and my garlic, also I add salt and pepper to that, after that's all processed through the Cuisinart. I put that in muffin tins, so I just pour a little bit of that mixture in each muffin tin, cover that in plastic wrap, and then pop that in my freezer. Once that pesto mixture is completely frozen through, I take it back out of the freezer, pop the little pesto patties out of the muffin tins, and then I seal those in a Ziploc bag. And now you're ready to have a beautiful pesto chicken all winter long. Matt, I hope you had a lovely afternoon at the farm and I hope you'll come back again. I absolutely will. And I hope that you'll come back again around the farm table. I'm your host, Inga Witcher.
1: And I am Matt Kinzera.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, do us a favor and share it with your friends. You can also review us and leave us five stars if you'd like. And if you're looking for some recipes and to connect with some of the farmers we talked to, find us at www.aroundthefarmtable.com. And check out your local PBS station for television episodes of Around the Farm Table.